one elder I interviewed, Elder Rose Bird from Thunderchild First Nation. Uh, she's one of our elders here at First Nations University up in Prince Albert. She explained how that colonial legislation and, the, and structures that were in place, uh, how it controlled, you know, she felt controlled and, and, and that they were in place to control Indigenous people and create a system of dependency that really denied many access to money and an education in, in money management, not being able to actually control their own finances in many cases on reserve, right? Having to go through the Indian agent to, you know, access food and to be able to even go off reserve, right? When the past system was in place, there was a complete dependency and lack of access to money and, and controlling their own financial, their financial state. This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is the Personal Finance Show. Bettina Schneider wants you to understand the impact your values histories and life experiences have on your financial decision-making processes. Bettina has a PhD in Native American Studies and is currently Associate Professor and Associate Vice President Academic at First Nations University of Canada. Bettina spends a lot of her time contemplating the following questions. How can we increase Indigenous people's access to culturally relevant financial education resources? And how can we frame the way we talk about financial literacy and personal finance in order to make it more accessible to a wider audience? Bettina believes that financial literacy resources do not always speak to the varied values and experiences of their audience and would like to see more of those resources explore how people's money culture impacts the way they relate to money. Bettina joined me from Regina, Saskatchewan to share her personal finance story. I think one of my earliest positive memories as a kid was my first job uh, at a, a little cider mill in New York, uh, okay. right, right in the town where I grew up. And uh, I was probably about 14 and I was just thrilled by, by that, right? The idea that I could uh, start working and earning my own money and, and uh, be a bit independent. And I think it tied into some more challenging mem memories early on from my childhood because it was right around that time that my dad had lost his job, probably a few years beforehand. You, you know, he'd been working as part of a family business. The family business went under and everything started to crumble a bit, uh, although to be honest, we didn't talk about it. I didn't know fully the scope of what was happening in my family. My parents, you know, they wanted to protect us from what was happening. What they started to do was dip into savings I see. in a big way and take on debt to manage life. And it wasn't sustainable. And I think that there was a clear sense that um, something was wrong, but I didn't, I couldn't quite put my finger on what was happening. I, they tried to find work in a number of different areas, but nothing was really working very well for a long time. And so the more I could be independent, the better, yeah. right? 
Like just for, so you wouldn't have to say, ask them for money for certain things. I just didn't want to be a burden because I, I could sure. sense they had enough on their plate at that time. And, and so, yeah, there was, a, a, I think some sense just to, to, to be independent, try to find my own way financially, but at the same time, not being in an environment where we didn't really talk about money and what was happening, it did impact me, not for the better, right? And, and I don't think we, we really, as a family, talked about financial literacy, personal finance in any way that maybe helped prepare us, as me and my brothers, going forward. And I, I think my parents, my dad and his family, I don't, I don't think that he grew up in an environment, right, where that was money was discussed and, you know, these, these kind of critical lessons that you, you learn through personal finance, they weren't part of his childhood growing up. I think my mom was exposed to it a bit more. She grew up in a bit more of a working class family. And my dad had, I think, less money worries growing up early on. And, and they just, I don't think, had a very strong base themselves as kids in terms of how do you go about managing money well at an early age? There were criticisms my dad had even of money at an early age because of uh, some of the stuff he saw going on around him and his and his family and his world. His relationship with money wasn't very healthy mm-hmm. enough that he was criticizing the way that the the system worked. Exactly, he was he was uh, you know he, he him and my mom were coming of you know age in the the sixties seventies. They were part of a, a very much a counterculture. Yeah. Uh, worldview. Uh, my dad, you know, had grown up in a, in a family where, you know, I think in a, in, in a world where he, he saw money as a very destructive force in, in okay. many respects, it led to unhealthy relationships, greed, things that he, he was very philosophically critical of. And, and so I think his relationship with money was uh, very shaped by that early childhood, that kind of counterculture mentality. He certainly, you know, wanted to share what he had always, you know, didn't want money to weigh him down, I think, in the way he saw it weighing others down in his life. And and I think that certainly some of that got passed on to me in, in, in many ways at an early age. But that desire to, you know, be generous, to give, to not uh, be too de- attached to money. I think for him, it, it, you know, he, he saw people so consumed with money around him that yeah. they didn't care for each other. To avoid that, he needed to go to the other extreme to jump ahead, knowing mm-hmm. what you know now, having been through your life, and perhaps you have reconciled this. Is there a way to reconcile the, these two uh, beliefs that money is evil, but you know money can help us uh, as well? I, I I definitely believe there there is a way to reconcile it, and I and, and I I certainly have struggled with that topic for quite some time. Right, that that, mm-hmm. that idea that you know um, how do you change the the conversation around you know with with those who who see money as an evil, right? Who yes. see money yes. as, uh, or ha- there's a stigma around money and savings, yeah. um, and and I, I I deal with it all the time, you know. Uh, in, in this course that I teach at the university, financial empowerment, even in some of the, the work and the, the research I've done regarding uh, personal finance, it's, it's a topic that's come up a lot, you know, in my work with First Nations communities. Uh, there's been a lot of, you know, conversations around just that idea, right? You know, money has been, a, has been the root cause of many problems for indigenous peoples uh, across the world, right? It's, it, you know, mm-hmm. I stated in, my, in, in the text the pursuit of money, right, has you know fueled much of the conquest that colonized Indigenous people, peoples in Canada and throughout the world. And so, 
there's often a stigma I've found in conversations, you know, I've had uh, in different research projects I've done. Uh, and so how do we turn that around and, and, and look at how can money be a, a source of how, how can money help you uh, align with those values that are important to you as an individual and as a, as a community, as a collective? One of the questions I ask my students in, in, in the class a lot is how uh, I, I've noticed that my students, a number of them, right, that, that focus on community is critical, right? Uh, mm. that, that focus on giving back to their community and, and to, to their, to their close relations and family. Right. And it's something that I think we, we, many of us relate to, but certainly I've seen it come up in, in so many conversations with my students and, and uh, some of the research I've done with first nations communities. And so how do we look at money as a way to, how, how can saving money help you to further the goals of your community? How can money putting that money away uh, instead of looking at it as a negative and as an evil and as a, you know, as you're hoarding money, look yeah. at it, look at it as a way to to help those around you, help your community move forward, help you uh, you know achieve uh, the, those dreams that your relatives and and friends have. So we we try to look at it and and, and frame it in that way. Yeah, I like that because I, I can see how if if you do have that original thought that money is evil and the money is what uh, enabled the conquests of communities and civilizations uh, in the past uh, and still today. Anything to do with money will seem like you're being selfish and you don't care mm -hmm. if you don't do it and if you don't incorporate that all into it, right? You, like, you're like, I don't want to be like those people who just use money for their, their own uh, selfish reasons, selfish purposes. Exactly. So you're working on this is you're doing this a lot. You're working on reframing this. So let's go back then to you. You're now you're 14 and you're earning money. What? Uh, so is this just is this for you to just be able to enjoy your life? Or are you actually having to contribute this back into the family? Well, my 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 parents never never asked that of us at yeah. all at the time. Uh, but certainly, for I, I would I would try to avoid asking for for much, right? Of anything, I was I was never a, I think I was a bit of a frugal kid uh, in general from from the get go, and <clears throat> I think at that time, I, I just wanted to have money to to uh, to be able to have a you know a cushion, something to be able to do do things that, with friends or just to to save to put away really, and uh, not have to rely or you know burden my parents in that way, and and. You know, my dad was always like, oh, here's $20, you know, here's, here's, here's $10, you know, because that's the kind of guy he was. And my mom, you know, was, was that way too. You know, they, they, they were both always very generous uh, beyond what they maybe should have been, right? <laughs> sure, yeah, to their own uh, detriment uh, at times. Absolutely. So I think for me, I, I was I was putting it away and, and, and really, you know, I didn't have clear goals outlined at the time, but just to kind of manage day to day things that would come up. And and I wish, you know, I was kind of more clear about my goals at the time and, and had been and, you know, I put some away for the future. But what that future was, it wasn't entirely clear. Uh, you, you know, I had ho hoped to go to college, right, and university, but nothing I was earning could really, I think, deal with that decision to go to university and, and the debt that came with that. No, yeah, the the fact that you're even thinking about this uh, at in the early teens, some people never have to think about it. 
at all until they get into, you know, say past a uh, university because the thing doesn't happen. The catalyst, the, you know, the business going, going south, for example, because it sounds like you came from a relative position of privilege. Yes, right? absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so like, you know, and, unless you start like and when you, if you're actually poor, you know, the, the idea of money being security doesn't usually come to be in someone who is coming from privilege because it's just there. But mm-hmm. because you had this incident, it seems like you then did adopt like I want my own independence and security. But you just didn't have a clear vision, of course, because you're you're a kid. Right. 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 <laughs> so no, nobody expects you to have that. Did you have savings like always? Was that something that you then like, I want to have money so that, you know, always so that I don't uh, run into this situation again? I think that I always wanted to have some savings set aside, some cushion. I, I, I think that was always a strong drive within me. Certainly when I went to school, you know, I, I wanted to always work, uh, you know, always had a side job, something happening, right, to be to ensure that, you know, there was there was something coming in. When I went to university, the only way I was able to go, right, was because of, of student loans. Just to interrupt you there, so your parents now are just trying to get by. And mm-hmm. did, did they, like, I don't know if we, you don't have to get into the details, especially if it's private for them, uh, but did they have to go bankrupt? No, they didn't have to go bankrupt, but certainly, you know, they had to end up selling the home and, you know, essentially uprooting everything in their lives. And there was a lot of turmoil there once they did have to finally make that decision. There was no money for for you to go to school. So you, yeah, so you knew student loans were the only way. Mm -hmm. And you're in New York State at this point still? Yes, New York State. And so what school did you end up going to? Well, and this is where, you know, again, more discussions around financial literacy might have led me to a different decision, but I I had gone to NYU, which is not a cheap school to go to. (laughs) And and at the time, I think there were a lot of pressures around me in in, in where I grew up. You got to go to university. You got to, you got to go to school and you got to try to go to the best school you can go to. And I'd applied to some different options. My, 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 my dad at one point did say, Hey, do you want to, you know, you want to stay here and commute? And I could have tried to do it certainly there, you know, and, and looking back, I maybe wish I had decided differently, but for various reasons, I, I, at that point I, I, I wanted to be on my own and, and start my, um, my life away from my home base. And so I, I went, I decided to go to NYU, take on all that debt. My parents helped, they took on some of it and I'm, I'm now helping right now to clear that debt on their end. And, and I've, okay. uh, you know, I've cleared the debt that I took on and I'm dealing with the debt that they took on to help out because uh, they knew it was so important for me at the time to go to university. They never discouraged me otherwise uh, to go. They always supported the decision, but, uh, but you know, where that money was to come from, <laughs> right? There was no, yeah. you know, it was, you know, we had this magical world of student loans and, and no one talked about the long-term impact of that, right? Let's let's look at what that's going to mean for you in 20 years, Bettina, or to them, you know, even. Yeah, so what year is this just for context? Mm-hmm. It was just 1997. So you're probably 18 or, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. something like that. So, and then what what was the number uh, once you were done university? What what was the amount oh, of, the, of the loans? Astronomical. I mean, I, I, I graduated within a three-year time frame uh, okay, because yeah. uh, because of the concern around 
the, the debt that was building up. I have a good friend of mine, uh, my, my old roommate in college, she was doing the same thing. So I just followed her good lead. She said, I'm getting out of here in three years because I don't want to, I don't want to have this excessive debt. So I, I was very fortunate that she, she kind of shared her vision and, and I went that route as well. Uh, I mean, after it was all said and done, I'd have to go back to get the exact number, you know, well over 60,000 at least. And a lot of my debt got tied up. When I went to grad school, I, I had some debt, very minimal compared to what I took on for undergrad. So that kind of got okay. tied in with some of my other other undergrad debt. So when it's all said and done, I'll probably be well over $70,000 um, in terms of the the, the debt I'll, I'll have paid off. And so, yeah, so you've taken care of your portion of that, but you're saying that you your parents are still holding on to some? They are, but I've absolutely, you know, agreed that I'm I'm covering every portion of my debt because sure. I don't want to have that burden. But it's taking like it would be two thousand then uh-huh. you, then when you graduated. Uh-huh. So we're talking like almost twenty years, uh-huh. and the debt is still in existence. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and we can, we'll find out uh, why because we're, we're going to find out your trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, but so so let's let's uh, find out what you actually took in university in undergrad first. Yeah, I was a history major. Loved history. Got really uh, into immigration history in particular. Right at the time okay, uh, in yeah. New York, and, and then uh, yeah, I, I went on, uh, I graduated, and. Couldn't find work. Well, what what would you have wanted to do? Uh, did, did you have anything in mind at that point? Um, I didn't have a clear sense of where I was going. I, I knew I had sure. wanted to, you know, I wanted to do something that was, you know, really contributing to making the world a better place. Right. That was that was about where I was at at that time, and 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 so I, I was looking at the time for nonprofit jobs, but was realizing. You know, if I was going to stay in New York, all the jobs that I was seeking out or even eligible for, I would be making hardly anything uh, to cover the rent and expenses there. Even, you know, to moving moving back home and commuting wasn't even feasible. So my mom said, hey, why don't you think about maybe going back to school? And maybe that's maybe that's a, a route to go. And, a, and I found a, a program um, out in California in community development. I was very interested in that because I think from a, an early age too, I had a, one of my key life goals was to be part of a community in, in, a, in yeah. a way, to contribute to community uh, in, in a way. My grandparents died in a car accident when I was uh, 13. And I remember just being at their funeral and just, they were such a big part of the community. And it just impacted me in such a significant way that I think that really kind of shaped some of my direction, right? And, and where I wanted to kind of go with my life. And, and it was, it's a very large, broad goal, right? <laughs> but sure, it, but yeah, that, any kind of community. But yeah. yeah, so this program was about how to improve community, how to, or even build yeah. um, better community. Exactly. And, and, and different ways that, you know, that, that essentially we we as, as individuals uh, can contribute to that in, in society. And so there was a, you know, diff, uh, there were a number of different routes you could go, but when, you know, I, I went out there and just started taking the introductory courses and, and, and was particularly interested in community economic development. But as soon as I got out there, I was in desperate need of a job. <laughs> and so yeah. <laughs> I, uh, cause I was very clearly where I was absolutely on my own moving away. And, and, and I found a, my first job, I, w- I was a teaching assistant in Native American studies. They, okay. they needed someone and I, I, I was really, uh, you know, interested in the position. And so I was hired in and, and then 
just really fell in love with uh, Native American Studies, the program out there. And there was a real tie-in to community development. There was a real overlap. There were a number of courses within Native Studies that could count toward the community development degree. And, and the further I went in the, the Master's of Community Development, I started taking classes in Native Studies as well. And then decided eventually, you know what, I, I just, I love what I'm, I'm, I just love what I'm learning. And I'm going to begin working towards a PhD. That's how I started to move into Native Studies, Indigenous Studies, and that, that whole world. So with the journey, the school journey, uh, how long did it take? It took, yeah, it took a long time. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 um, well, I was, I went, I went out when I was about 22 and, uh-huh. and, uh, lived out in California there for about five years. And, and, and at that time, you know, I finished my, my master's and then finished off the PhD courses there. And uh, I, I moved out to Canada in 2000. Yeah. 2006, I, I, I moved up to Regina, Saskatchewan to, to, to complete my dissertation and got, you know, got a fellowship to come up here. And, but yeah, during that five years in California, I had uh, I had started to work uh, heavily in uh, with Native financial institutions, so that was a big focus in my in both my master's and my uh, PhD uh, was looking at uh, Native community development financial institutions, particularly in the master's program, and then I expanded to Native just Native financial institutions do in my PhD and Aboriginal financial institutions, which is what drew me to Canada, right? The, uh, for the PhD is to kind of look at kind of a comparative study of what what's happening in Canada uh, amongst Indigenous communities, uh, peoples with regards to banking, financial institutions. Yeah. And, uh, and then I've, I had an incredible experience working with Native financial t- institutions in the in the U.S. And, and, and actually my first job right out of uni- uh, university, college, I, for a very brief period, right? Uh, it was just a, it was an internship right before I moved out to California for a community development financial institution in, in New York. And um, so that's kind of what initially made me aware of the work that uh, those institutions were doing. And then when I got into got 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 out to Davis, California, and got into that master's program, I I, I started uh, looking into Native community development financial institutions because there were so many uh, that it kind of were just being uh, initiated at that time. And and so uh, yeah. So yeah. So there's a few things to drill down on there. For, first of all, can can you educate us just very very basically on the the proper terminology? Because I, I I have heard that native is okay in the states, but I know that it's not okay here. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Well, it's here, you know, in, in Canada, I know that we use primarily Indigenous, right? When we're talking about, you know, First Nations, Métis, yeah. Inuit, uh, it's not something that is, you, Native is not used in any kind of significant way that I've, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of here in Canada, right? I, I never use it here very, very yeah. often, but yeah. it is, but it is, it is uh, used down in, down in the States and that, yeah, the program I was a part of was actually Native American Studies. So, so it's still okay, like, because you, I, I, you're talking about the Native financial institutions and that's how, how, how they would refer to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and more recently I've started using indigenous financial institutions generally just to encompass both native and yes. Aboriginal financial institu- institutions across Canada and the U S but, but yeah, in, in the States, um, you know, native CDFIs is, is how they were referred refer to, uh, you know, when I was doing my, my research and my dissertation, native financial, na- native banks, right. Native banking. Yeah. So just so just for people who are listening so they can continue if they're having trouble with, you know, what, yeah, we're, what we're saying this, you're going to you, obviously you have a Ph.D. in Native American studies. 
you're going to use the right terminology <laughs> uh, better than been better than the rest of us. Uh, so, but then the second thing is, um, I don't know about uh, native financial institutions at all. And I guess that's maybe because I would never use them. Right, right. They're very much being accessed primarily, uh, you know, certainly in the States and largely here, although there are, you know, there are, I'm sure some non-Indigenous people who might access certain banks, but Native, well, there's uh, First Nations Bank here and in Saskatoon. And I think that that has a fairly wide audience, you know, or clientele, I should say. And, uh, but primarily, you're absolutely right. You know, Native financial institutions, Aboriginal financial institutions are very much there to serve First Nations communities, Indigenous communities. And, and so that is, that, that is a a core goal of these institutions. So let's let's talk about the the Canadian, just because I would probably be able to relate better. So could I open a bank account at First Nations Bank? Yes, my understanding is is absolutely you can. And is it different than any other bank like in, in Canada? Like is it is it under the the does it have Canada Deposit Insurance, uh, CDIC coverage, and that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yes, it does, and and so that's a that that's an example of a, certainly of a bank that that will, you know, it, it offers you know checking, savings, uh, you know, different account account options, right? Uh, loans, lines of credit. That uh, it has a, obviously a specific target too to work with First Nations communities, and so that's a primary goal, and they do a lot of uh, tar- you know targeted work with with First Nations. Uh, Groups and providing access right to banking uh, in in communities, particularly you know some more remote communities throughout the country. So, uh, but but there's more specific. There's there's other types of institutions, a, a, Aboriginal financial okay. institutions such as the Saskatchewan Indian Equity Found uh, Foundation, for example. That okay. uh, that 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 they're there to really just help support First Nations entrepreneurs. Uh, I see. Oh, that's great. They're, they're doing developmental lending. So they would they would be much more like I'm. I'm assuming uh, all of these organizations are partly or or entirely run by uh, the First Nations community, or is that uh, not not correct? Uh, so Saskatchewan Indian Equity Foundation is absolutely. Uh, it, it was one of the first Aboriginal financial institutions in Canada uh, yeah. to offer developmental lending, and um, it was. Uh, the the history of of that of that one in particular right is is that um it was created through the federation of saskatchewan indian nations at the time the fsan is is uh, currently now the uh federation of sovereign indigenous nations and nice. they are uh, they've created a number of first nations organizations first nations university is one of the 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 organizations that at the FSIN uh, created many years ago, and uh, okay. CIF is another one that they had a critical role in creating. And uh, yeah, so there's the, the 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 idea with Aboriginal financial institutions and and certainly Native financial institutions in the states is that it's it's uh, about Indigenous control and self determination, right? Of of mm, yes, yes, of finances and and of their financial direction and future. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And so, mostly like any other bank in Canada, uh, but any community initiatives, and then in this in the case of the fund, business loans or even uh, maybe even grants, the ability to get <laughs> funding for a business 
is fully towards the indigenous communities. Yes, exactly. The the idea I think behind so many of these um, these institutions, these indigenous financial institutions, is to uh, uh, you know establish a source of lending, right, for community initiatives for uh, community economic development. And, and so, for example, that uh, with CIF, right, it, it, when, they, when CIF was first, uh, first began uh, in 86, it, shortly before that, there was a, a need to establish a lending corporation, right, that was uh, identified by the 74 First Nations of Saskatchewan that are a part of the FSIN. And these First Nations now make up the membership of CIF. And, and the, the whole idea was to create, a, again, that, that uh, lending uh, corporation to help provide for First Nations in Saskatchewan and, and, and their uh, entrepreneurial ventures and economic development. Is it fair to say that the reason, one of the main reasons is because it would be very hard to get funding from the regular banks at that time? Absolutely. There was a, I think, across North America, First Nations communities were denied access to much of the mainstream banking that was yeah. available to non-Indigenous peoples. So you really saw this movement of Indigenous financial institutions beginning in the 80s, uh, really starting to move in the 90s and early 2000s. And so there's been a real growth really over the last 40 years, right? And these institutions are very much about, again, not just providing that access, but it's about, you know, Indigenous control of Indigenous institutions, Indigenous self-determination. I I like that. I like that term, Mm self-determination. I mean, it's uh, preceded by the worst kind of uh, control and, and everybody else determining what they did with their lives, right? Absolutely. So to, to see this in a financial way is, is great because, of course, uh, as we were talking about earlier, money and, and funding um, is what caused a lot of these conquests to be possible, you know, funding by uh, you know, governments of other countries and such, right, and when, mm-hmm. it, came, when it came to uh, uh, coming in and taking over territories mm-hmm. uh, in North America. Um, so, yeah, so that this is this is really great to hear. Honestly, I didn't know about First Nations University at all. Can you give us a, a just a quick summary of, of the university and how it uh, you said it was started in the uh, in the 80s or, or uh, late 70s, 1976. And, and so it, it began again through through a vision right, of, of, uh, of the elders uh, at the time of, uh, you know, uh, many of the kind of core elders that helped to create, create this university of the FSIN. And, and it, it, the idea was, again, Indigenous control of Indigenous education. That was the, kind of one of the driving forces at the time for, for many uh, First Nations communities throughout North America was how to create educational institutions that reflect the culture, values, and goals of, of Indigenous peoples, right? Especially coming out of the horrific era of residential schools and what that did to many communities. Uh, you know, First Nations University is, uh, was, it was and it is a, a, an incredible light in this country. And You knew about First Nations University when you were studying uh, for your PhD, um, and you did, was that a destination for you? Cause I mean, you've been there for 12 years, right? Uh, yeah, I've been here since, uh, 2007, uh, officially, although I, I was doing some TAing here in 2006, uh, yeah. or, or so, no, I guess it was just, it was just early 2007. I started TAing and then, um, 
and got my first job here in July of 2007. I was uh, slightly aware before I came to Saskatchewan of First Nations University, but I hadn't I hadn't known much about it uh, and, and, until I, I knew I was going to be moving to Canada. I had been exposed to other Indigenous educational institutions. I had been working uh, uh, with a tribal college right outside uh, right outside of Davis, uh, okay. California. I was teaching uh, an entrepreneurship course there at the time, and so I was really quite quite well aware of the the incredible impact and role that. Uh, tribal colleges and, 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 and in, in the U.S. and Indigenous post-secondary institutions were having. Uh, and at the time I, I moved to Canada, I wasn't quite sure how long I was going to be staying. I came out, you know, uh, again, for, I had nine months to work on a, my dissertation. Uh, but then I, I connected with a uh, close colleague here, uh, Dr. Bob Casius, who, who's been an incredible mentor uh, and friend to me. And, um, and, and, you know, he, he had indicated, Hey, you know, there's a, there's an opening here and had, I, you know, it, I'd shared with him a lot of the work I was doing. And so, uh, it, luckily things fell into place and I was able to start here and it's been, uh, just the most incredible place to work. I, I'm grateful <laughs> to, to be here. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just seems like such a great place and, and, uh, the work that you're doing in financial literacy, Let's uh, let's get back then to you now. So, you, why did you come to Canada? Was it just for this? Uh, was there another reason? It was it was just to 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 complete my my uh, dissertation at the time on, yeah, okay. on uh, Native and Aboriginal financial institutions. I was doing a comparative study, right? And I had I had applied for a, a Fulbright to come up here because I, I just was finding it very challenging to get. Uh, any work done in Davis because I was working too many jobs as a research assistant and, and okay, TA, yeah. and I could never find the time to do the work I had to do. So I said, I better, I better see if I can find some uh, support here to just focus on this. Uh, and luckily, uh, you know, that it, it came through, and I moved um, moved here. I was doing some consulting work at the time as well uh, with First Nations Oista Corporation, First Nations Development Institute, uh, the, the, uh, Opportunity Finance Network. The, these were all groups in the states that were doing. Uh, incredible work with First Nations communities, particularly in terms of creating native financial institutions, right? So these 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 groups that I was consulting with, they were helping to support a lot of the First Nations communities who wanted to create their own financial institutions. And um, that was a big part of my research in my dissertation. I had done, you know, a lot of work in the U.S. and wanted to go to Canada to see what Aboriginal, you know, the impact Aboriginal financial institutions were having, and mm-hmm. and so that's yeah, that's what took me to Regina. Well, so what does it take to? Uh, sorry, let's go back to you. I have so many questions because <laughs> <laughs> this is this is about uh, your story as well. You're coming now. You're in Canada, uh, but you have lots of debt. Yeah. Once you finally found your way, it seems like this is all very much worth it, right? Yeah. The, yeah, the exactly. amount of debt that you went into, uh, the the history degree by itself, that's that's tough, and and uh, you're, you're totally right in that. Uh, at that time, we were more focused on just go to school and figure it out uh, the payment later. Yeah. And I I what I've been thinking about lately is that this is just a mentality passed on by by our parents who um 
when school really didn't cost that much, you know? Exactly. <laughs> right? They, they, they didn't think about it. Is it. Yeah. Do you, do you agree that that's, that's what's, what has happened? Like in our generation, we were like this middle generation where like, oh, of course you got to go to school, whatever, yeah. just do it. I did it. And, uh, and then I got a job and it was easy. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. It was just kind of the expectation. Right. And, and, and yeah, they, and at the time I, my, yeah, my folks went to school. My, uh, it wasn't that much you know, for them, they, they, they walked away with very little debt, if, the, if, if any, really. And, uh, yeah. And they had jobs lined up, uh, probably, mm-hmm. or, or easy enough to get them. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, so to like, you're trapped in this, in this thing where you went to school, but the good thing is you were able to sort of find your direction and then find this position. But are, like, how are you doing with keeping up with your uh, your personal finances at this point? I had really no money except for, you know, the Fulbright group, uh, Fulbright Foundation was great. I had enough to get by on when I moved out here, right? I had an, I got a really cheap room. I lived with like six other people in, in a yeah, little yeah. house here to when I first moved out and for, for, for the really the first uh, few couple of years I, I lived here. And um, I just, you know, uh, didn't have a lot, just started earning money. So I was so grateful. Uh, you know, when I when I did get the job uh, here at First Nations University, started putting money away, started paying off debt, right? Uh, because I, at that point, I had really had to defer a lot of my my, my, pay, my debt payment, right? Because I didn't have um, any significant income coming in in grad sure. school. I was just making enough money to get by. And so then um, I, I started paying off debt. And, and then and then, you know, my dad brought up because, you know, again, he hadn't he hadn't really talked with us about the, the debt that, that, that they had taken on. And, and, yeah. and I wasn't really clearly aware right, of what that was. Uh, so it was not until, uh, yeah, after, t- gosh, 2010, 11, sometime around there, he started to talk about, well, the debt he had taken on for me and my brothers. And so and it cr- created a lot of, you know, let's let's be, on- I'll be honest, it created a, a lot of stress. I, you know, I, I was yeah. a little frustrated. I said, why, why'd you wait so long to, to bring this up? You know, we could have started tackling this a while, maybe a little, a little while ago if, if uh, you know, we, we had talked about it sooner. And, 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 yeah, and, and, and so we, 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 start, we, we worked through it and, and now it's, it's been, you know, just trying to tackle that, that, uh, that debt and and for my my folks it's it's um yeah i i i'm there's no way i'm gonna let them take that on you know i I, they 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 can't they 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 won't i they they shouldn't and and they can't and so i'm going you know i'm working away at that i'm trying to kind of find a way to um uh, you know get get it done and part of my challenge is of course i'm I'm waiting for the exchange rate to sometimes peak (laughs) yeah right you know because i have to pay this additional challenge that's uh yeah not i mean some people have this issue and it's not that common that you would be paying in another currency you're getting paid in the in the lower value (laughs) Uh unfortunately you're on the other side of it. it it would maybe be easier actually you wouldn't even have that much debt if it was if it was a canadian university exactly so what is the policy at first nations university like just to, to contrast your situation where you're in debt working um for this university and now now what is your uh, t- current title right now i am the associate vp academic at first nations university of canada and i'm a, <clears throat> also an associate professor in 
uh, business and public administration. So you're do you're teaching, but you're also doing uh, a, a lot of admin work as well. Yeah, exactly. A lot of admin work for sure. And and so as I'm dealing with all this debt and trying to figure out a way to pay it off and and move forward. I start looking into a class here that would be a benefit to students, right? Uh, so that they don't make the same mistakes maybe that I made in my life. And so actually, you did you did something right away to 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 try to implement uh, your your learnings. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I you know, well, it was I I, I had a, a good friend of mine, Grace McLeod, who used to be the, the director of student success services here, had said, you know, she wanted to, to look at some type of course, right, uh, that, that that would help the students. You know, many of them she felt were, were, were needing uh, a course in, in financial literacy, uh, personal finance that would help them and guide them. And, mm. and so I, I thought to myself, well, oh my gosh, not, um, you know, much of the work I was doing in the past with native financial institutions, you know, with, indig- with indigenous financial institutions, there was a big focus on financial literacy within those institutions, right? There was mm. a lot of, uh, I mean, they, so many of the groups I was working with had very culturally relevant tailored financial literacy curriculum. And yeah. so I, I thought to myself, uh, you know, and I, I had worked with a, the uh, Nuo Yutina Friendship Center on a research project uh, that they that they really had guided me on, right? It was, the, I had asked them, what, what could we do here? You know, what could I do to support you guys through the uh, research project that was uh, supported through the Urban Aboriginal Knowledge Network? Uh, and I said, you know, what, what, what would, what would be something that would help support you? And, and they initially said, hey, we provided financial literacy courses to a number of our clientele, but it just didn't hit. It just didn't connect. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, yeah, this was back in like I think about 2013, 2012, 2013, when we we embarked on this project. And I had a. Uh, I had said, well, I've done a lot of work with Indigenous financial institutions, uh, particularly in the States. There was a lot of focus on financial literacy. They created their own curriculum. They were they had courses on financial literacy for the community. And I said, and so I was looking to a lot of what I, they, you know, I had seen uh, to First Nations Development Institute and OISTA Corporation. Um, and, 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 and we started to look at AFOA, Aboriginal, Financials, uh, uh, Aboriginal Financial Officers Association here too, and some of the curriculum they created uh, to, to create something unique for the Friendship Center that would, that would better connect with the clientele. And, and so it was through that research project, that work, that community, uh, really community-driven research project, that I, I kind of had a base f- uh, for this course, right? And because I, I had created workshop modules with the Friendship Center, and and so when Grace, uh, my friend, said, "Hey, we need a course here, uh, we need something for our students," I said, "Well, you know what? I I, I feel like I, I could do this. You know, I feel like I have a I have something that I could create a course from." And at the same time, I created that course. Uh, there was an opportunity for funding for an open access textbook project. And I thought to myself, you know, I want to find a text, uh, a textbook, a financial literacy textbook that the students could use in this course that would be free, right? So I want to start saving. I want them to start saving money from the get go. <laughs> right? right. These textbooks are just a fortune for you. And 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 to be they're honest, expensive. they are. And students are not buying them a lot of the times, and 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 they're not doing as well in classes because they don't they won't buy the text. Uh, they'll just try to get by on PowerPoint slides or you know. Um, you know, copy, share, share with their friends, but they're not buying the textbooks. And so, really, yeah, it's, it's an, it's a big issue. That's why the, I'm such a big supporter of the open access. Maybe the tuition is covered 
by loans or grants already, but they have to spend the money on the textbooks or they can actually control whether they spend money on textbooks or not? So a lot of students, uh, you know, if they if they have the funding, uh, you know, then the textbook issue maybe isn't as much of an issue. But but for, for students who are putting themselves through on their own and working, the textbooks are just not not, uh, you know, they're, they're a last option for them. You know, yeah. they won't they'll find any other route. I, I'll always put my books textbooks on reserve for, for certain classes so that the students have access to them. And that's how I, I used to do it in university too. I used to try to, uh, you know, try to avoid buying the texts a lot of the times if I could get them on reserve. But um, but this open access textbook option allows, uh, you know, the idea is that textbooks are free. I'm looking at it now. I, I, really, I, I love this, right? Like you can just go online and read the book. Yeah. Right. That's, <laughs> it's that easy. Just click on the link, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so you took this you took this existing uh, personal finance book, mm-hmm. textbook, textbook, and you totally adapted it to be for indigenous and non-indigenous people. Uh, like it's not like it excludes. No. Um, you know, it's not like it o- it's only for indigenous people. Uh, it just makes it actually uh, for everyone. Exactly. Exactly. Because what I what I found uh, is is that when I um, was looking for texts uh, for options for for my students when I when I first wanted to create the course here uh, back in 2017, uh, you know there were there were no mention of First Nations people and in, Inuit, Métis, Indigenous peoples in, in general within any of the Canadian personal finance texts that I was looking at. Right, and yeah. and so to, I, I was bothered by that, and I I, I certainly you know thought to myself, well, you know, how are my students going to relate to this? Uh, so, you know, there's no mention of taxation on reserve. <laughs> there's no, that's yeah. not reflected in, in any of the resources, I mainstream kind of resources I was looking at. Um, there's just no mention of Indigenous peoples whatsoever from what I was, you know, seeing at the time. And, um, you know, a good friend of mine, Elsa Johnston, who, who, who helps to manage the, the open access program here at the U of R, uh, University of Regina, which is you know, First Nations University is a federated uh, college for, uh, of the University of Regina. She okay. she had said, um, you know, everyone needs to be able to see themselves in what they're learning, right? Yes, yes, I, I love that concept, uh, and and uh, it applies to everything. I think, you know, the, that's we need representation in everything so that you can be reflected in what you see. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So this text was an effort to you know uh, make this topic far more accessible and 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 relevant and 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 interesting to um, you know to my students to you know indigenous students across the country uh, to communities indigenous communities and peoples and uh, and 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 also certainly to a Canadian audience right so because this was a U.S. based open access text that I adapted and so I had to take all of the U.S. content out and and really you know fo- focus completely on 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 Canada and uh and 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 indigenous and, and indigenous people here within Canada. That's amazing. And of course you, the PhD and experiences how you were able to do this. Uh it's almost time uh, for for me to let you go. It, it went by really fast actually. It did. Yeah. Um they uh, but I do want uh, to hear uh, your impression of the state of uh of financial literacy in, in the well I guess let's let's stick with Canada just to, I guess to make it simple, but if you have uh, American examples as well too, that's that's great. But how? What's the state of uh, financial literacy in Indigenous communities today? Well, I, I I think it's it's 
very promising, right? Uh, you know, there's there's a lot more um, access to resources that I, I, I believe do reflect the, the the values and histories of, of Indigenous peoples. And so AFOA Canada, for example, they're doing some really great work. And AFOA, the, the BC chapter has done some really great uh, work on, on the creation of financial literacy curriculum, uh, you know, that that's available to ind- Indigenous peoples. And so there's 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 more and more coming coming out uh, that I think that does make this topic uh, more relevant, more accessible. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot, you know, a lot more to do, though, you know, there's a lot more that yeah. we can be doing. Uh, one of one of the uh, I think one of the, the, the key differences I, I've noticed just between many of the native financial institutions in, in, in the States and, and the Aboriginal financial institutions here in Canada is that, that um, there was a lot more funding, at least when I was doing my dissertation at, the, at that time for uh, financial literacy uh, through native financial institutions uh, in the U S than there, than there is necessarily here today in, in Canada for Aboriginal financial institutions, uh, that, 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 that pot of money was quite significant. And I think allowed for many, uh, uh, financial, uh, financial institutions in, in the States, native financial institutions to create uh, cu- culturally tailored curriculum and really, you know, be able to deliver that in a, in a really accessible way. Uh, so I think that I'd like to see more resources that can be used to, you know, to broaden the reach and uh, to, to create more access when it comes to this topic in Indigenous communities. And, and so it's, it's exciting to have been given this opportunity to adapt this textbook. And I'm working, uh, you know, with the FCAC right now. And that work is, I, I'm hoping, going to allow for this topic of financial literacy within Indigenous communities to have a, a broader reach. Yes, and uh, the FCAC is a good place to to do that. So we're we're taking this out of isolation, and feels odd to say it, but uh, we need to reintegrate the way that we present. Like we we let's bring First Nations community back into the into the discussion, right? Because the banks the banks don't seem to be um, aware. <laughs> you know, this is, this is what I see. The banks don't seem to be aware that the First Nations exist. The the big banks. There are there's a lot more uh, happening today than than certainly in the past. And, you know, uh, TD was a big supporter of First Nation, the creation of First Nations Bank and, and um, okay, in, in, its, in its early years. Uh, you know, uh, RBC has been doing some really great work uh, with with um, indigenous communities here in Canada. So there's there's, I think, more and more efforts being made that I that I'm absolutely seeing today. So I, I, I will say that, you know, the, the, the bigger banks are, are getting more involved and, and, and helping to move uh, move this forward. I know that, like, you know, many and, and many of the credit unions as well. Connexus Credit Union uh, was a big supporter of uh, my the financial empowerment class here and helped to really uh contributed a lot to that course and, and getting it off off the ground. So um, I know I think there's a real desire and 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 effort being made by by many of these uh, you know banks and credit mainstream banks credit unions to 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 help move move this topic of financial literacy forward and provide more access to lending. But I still feel like you know there's there's a lot more that we could be doing. And, and certainly I think the importance of providing resources, uh, or, you know, within indigenous communities and, 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 and having, having indigenous communities drive this, right. 
is is critical. Yeah, I mean the the banks have the money. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm looking at uh, the BMO uh, front page right now, and it's got four white people on it. Mm-hmm. And like that, mm-hmm. it's not. I don't need to see myself reflected. Uh, I don't have that need. I've, I've. It's always been that way for me, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like that's not important to me. It's important to others, I think. Yeah. Right. Uh, like I'm looking at the First Nations Bank Canada, and of course, it's all First Nations, mm-hmm. as it should, as it should be. Uh, but you know like why are why are we still presenting this just white face on everything canadian when we're so uh diverse right like not not just the people who who were here before we came but everybody who came after too who is not a, a white person yeah right like the, absolutely it just it just seems like we're uh, i mean i i like that you're saying that there it is promising and i know there's lots of work to do i just I feel like it's uh, the the financial, and it, tell me if you disagree, but I feel like overall, especially Canadian financial um, advertising and uh, just the presentation of of your retirement can look like this and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff, it's all very whitewashed. No? Yeah, no, I absolutely, I agree. I absolutely it, agree. And, and, and full of full of privilege. Uh, exactly. So, so what, like, the, just the things that you just said that we can do, we can just keep the conversation going. Is that is that the uh, what we can do right now? What can everybody do? What can anyone do? Yeah, and that's that's uh, that's the great question. I I, I think that it, it has to go beyond keeping the conversation going, and and um, w- what the what the answer is, uh, you know. I don't know, but I do know that uh, we have to look at financial literacy and how it's been framed, and and we need Mm -hmm. to be able to change that. Change it in such a way that it's something that people want to embrace, and and particularly, of course, I'm talking about Indigenous communities. Change the way we talk about financial literacy, personal finance. uh, And and so, for example, you know, I I talk about in in the text, I talk about... um, you know, in, in, the rich economic history of Indigenous communities and peoples here in Canada and mm. how they demonstrated strong personal financial skills pre-contact. Absolutely. Really? And, and, really? That, that's amazing. Well, and, and I really have, uh, again, First Nations Oista Corporation and First Nations Development Institute to thank on, on that because, the, you know, that, that that's really something that they focused on in a lot of their financial literacy curriculum. They're building Native communities curriculum. They highlight that history, uh, traditional resource management, and and what what you know that, how that ties into today and personal finance. So how do we take uh, traditional resource management and the lessons that it teaches and apply it to managing our finances today, right? And so it's about connecting uh, indigenous history, histories, uh, values, and and that rich economic history that I'm, I'm talking about to today. Yeah, that that sounds like a fantastic way to, especially if if it's indigenous youth who are feeling like you know I can't be part of this, uh, uh, you know, financial system by going back. The, the interviews with the elders that you have in the book is that what they're talking about? Much of what they talk about is their experience and and how they survived, given the the colonial legislation and structures that were in place, uh, given yeah. racially focused forms of social an economic exclusion that they had to, um, you know, undergo uh, and, and, 
and you know such as reserves, residential schools, the pass system, right? These all these all are just example, you know, there are examples of, of that social and economic exclusion and how it, it limited them from fully participating and engaging in the economy, right? The, the, the mainstream economy. And I, I have a, one elder I interviewed, Elder Rose Bird from Thunder Child First Nation. Uh, she's one of our elders here at First Nations University up in Prince Albert. She explained how that colonial legislation and, and structures that were in place uh, how it controlled, you know, she felt controlled and, and, and that yeah, they were a place to absolutely. control indigenous people and create a system of dependency that really denied many access to money and, 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 and an education in, in money management and how to, so, you know, not being able to actually control their own finances in many cases on reserve, right. Having to go through the, uh, the, uh, you know, Indian agent uh, to, you know, access food and to be able to even uh, go off reserve, right? When the past system was in place, there was a complete dependency and lack of access to money and, and controlling their own financial, their financial state. Well, that's, that's why, like, when you said, you know, self-determination and these, you know, uh, indigenous banks run by indigenous people, it's, you know, th- it, that that's probably um, the best thing that i've heard about this because yeah even if like let's say a business could get a loan from uh from bmo or whatever it's still uh they wouldn't feel like you know they had control right? uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and and it's not and it's not necessarily because that is the case it's because that's how it was it always was and we can't expect the the adjustment to be uh you know that fast right it's going to take some time uh, but i hope that this continues and that uh, anybody can find a place to bank or or get money or to learn about uh you know to have financial education and literacy where they feel comfortable and so it seems like you have so many awesome resources what's the best way for someone to go and read uh, the financial empowerment book. I'll put I'll put the link in the show notes. But like, can they go to the university website and and, and search for you or? Yeah, well, if the they, best place if they uh, they can go through uh, uh, the University of uh, Regina site and and they can uh, certainly just plug in um, financial empowerment, personal finance for Indigenous and, and non-Indigenous people. Uh, and I think that if you um, you go to Google as well and just plug that in. Uh, yeah, you, you yeah. might just be be right up there, right? Mm-hmm. That that's great, and and uh, so yeah. So you're teaching, and can anyone go to First Nations University? To I see that you can learn about First Nations. It's not it's not just First Nations people going. You're learning. There's so many courses. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, uh, First Nations University is well as open to all, and we we have uh, you know we're, we're in, in an exciting place. We're, we're we're growing in some significant ways. We we are teaching uh, a, a growing number of, of uh, Indigenous students all the time here. Uh, uh, we've been on, on an upward trajectory for quite some time, uh, and we're doing a lot of work in educating non-Indigenous uh, people as well. So we have a you know certainly uh, I think an incredible role to play here in Canada, and and and, and uh, I encourage people to. To check out the university website, uh, fnunive.ca, www.fnunive.ca, and, and we have a number of different programs that we offer here, and uh, financial empowerment is one of them in the business program. So, <laughs> it's- that's that's perfect. Like I, I love the concept of, of the, that First Nations University exists in general, and then the fact that 
you're able to do this whole financial literacy thing along. It just, uh, it, uh, I'm so glad you're able to come on the show and talk about this. You, you're playing a really important role, so well, keep going. Another 12 more years. <laughs> well, I, I'm so grateful for the opportunity, and thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this last hour. It did go quick. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Well, thanks so much, and uh, I really, I, I will speak to you again in the future. We'll, we'll keep this conversation going. I would love that. Thank you. And that was episode 95 with Bettina Schneider. If you like the podcast and want to see me get to episode 100 and beyond, please support the podcast by going to my Patreon site and becoming a patron. It's only a few bucks a week, but if enough people do it, it starts to add up. Head over to patreon.com slash bowhumphreys if you're interested. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next week with personal finance expert and the author of the best-selling Broke Millennial book series, Aaron Lowry.